Good afternoon. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome you to our Hayek Auditorium for a discussion about universal coverage and, uh, in particular, well, broadly, but also touching on the legislation that President Obama signed into law, um, I think it was two days ago today. Uh, I've been asked to read you this uh, dispatch, which, is with, which just came across the wire. It's from the Associated Press. It reads, Cuban leader endorses U.S. health care reform, says it's about time. <laughs> Cuban le revolutionary leader Fidel Castro on Thursday declared passage of American health care reform, quote, a miracle and a major victory for Obama's presidency, but couldn't help chide the United States for taking so long to enact what communist Cuba achieved decades ago. <laughs> we consider health care reform to have been an important battle and a success of his, Obama's government, Castro wrote in the essay published in state media, adding that it would strengthen the president's hand against lobbyists and, quote, mercenaries. And it goes on from there. So I thought you would enjoy that. Um, so two days ago, President Obama signed into law what is actually one of the most sweeping pieces of social legislation in our nation's history that will make health insurance compulsory for nearly every American and extend health insurance coverage to an estimated 32 million Americans by 2019, or roughly three-fifths of the uninsured. Now, motivating our discussion today and the, the title of this uh, policy forum, Would Universal Coverage Improve Health?, uh, was something that happened during the debate over that legislation. Ezra Klein, a, a blogger for the Washington Post, caused a small ruckus when he wrote that failing to pass the Democrats' health care legislation would, cause, would, quote, cause the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Klein was extrapolating from the Institute of Medicine's estimate that nearly 20,000 Americans die annually because they lack health insurance coverage. And, of course, it seems intuitive that expanding coverage to 32 million Americans would improve their health. Here today, we're here to answer the question, would it improve their health? Will the measure that President Obama signed into law two days ago improve Amer Americans, uh, America's health? Will it save lives, and will it save hundreds of thousands of lives? And what does the state of knowledge about the health effects of broad health insurance expansion say have to say about that law? We'll be exploring those questions today uh, with John... Ayanian, professor of medicine and healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital, and David Meltzer, associate professor of medicine and economics at the University of Chicago. Dr. Meltzer will begin our discussion, followed by Dr. Ayanian, and then I will be batting cleanup. We're then going to open the discussion uh, to questions from the audience. And after uh, this uh, policy forum, I invite you to join us uh, for a reception in our on our auditorium level, this is a bit of a change because usually we'll have our uh, wine and cheese receptions upstairs in the Winter Garden. There's another event going on up there, so we'll be congregating right outside of the auditorium here on the auditorium level. So with that, I will turn things over to David. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I, Michael, I feel a little sorry for you in the sense that you have, you know, 200 years of American history in which you can talk about the effects of not having health insurance on health, and then somehow you manage to time this exactly before we get major health care reform. So I'm sorry, um, but um, hopefully it's still relevant, and I, I think we can talk about um, how, how it is. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about this question of, you know, does health insurance really Im improve health? And I should say that much of what I'm going to say is really based on a paper that Helen Levy, who's at the University of Michigan, and I wrote um, a number of years ago talking about um, this, this, this issue. 
And I, I want to begin by sort of emphasizing the fundamental logic by which people would imagine health insurance would improve health. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious. If you have health insurance, it lowers the price of health care. That allows people to buy that, that health care, and that health care in turn produces health. And so I'm an economist. Um, as an economist, this seems pretty obvious. And I have to say that I think this message is basically correct. Um, and as I'll show you, I think that there's some evidence that hints at that. John is going to talk about it in much, in much more detail. But the, the question I'm going to ask is, is a little more complicated, which is how well do we really know this and how should we approach knowing it? And I'll say that the work that Helen and I did, which has been often cited as suggesting that health insurance doesn't really improve health, is far better stated as saying that we don't have nearly as good evidence about the effects of health insurance on health as we could have or should have. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why we don't and sort of what we can do about it. And part of the message will be we've actually already done a fair number of things about it, although there's much more um, to do. So this causal relationship is, is pretty obvious. Um, it doesn't take a lot of imagination, though, to take this sort of simple model and argue that it's, it's incomplete. So, for example, um, you could recognize that health behaviors drawn here at the bottom influence all of this. And if you haven't adequately accounted for people's health behaviors, you could easily be missing certain aspects of this relationship that would cause you to incorrectly um, understand the relationship between insurance and health if you didn't um, control for them. Well, you know, those might be things we could measure or think about measuring, but um, even that is complicated, of course, because health behaviors don't just exist, the arrow going from health behaviors to health. Um, health itself would affect health behaviors, and so it's very difficult to infer a causal relationship um, between many of the things um, that, that we observe. And in fact, even if you look at a lot of the epidemiologic studies, like the Women's Health Initiative, um, so, um, some of those, you know, is it that, that taking hormone replacement makes you healthier, or is it that people who worry more about their health may be more likely to take... Um, 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 certain medications. So these are difficult um, causal relationships to infer. Well, that's one type of sort of reverse causation that you could worry about, but it gets even worse. So you can actually reverse pretty much every one of these arrows. So, for example, um, people who have very bad health, for example, end-stage renal disease, seek a lot of medical care. They also, in fact, in this country, get health insurance. In fact, pretty much everyone with end-stage renal disease in America has health insurance. You'd be making probably a mistake to conclude that the presence of health insurance causes them to have end-stage renal disease. So you're going to want to develop um, certain analytic strategies to think about how to infer these sorts of relationships. Now, this is a, one set of potential confounding factors, but in fact, the problem is a lot worse than this because it's also confounded by a bunch of things we know about patients to affect all of these things, their age, their race, their income, their education. And if we don't adequately control for these, we have, we have problems. Or if we don't control for them, we have problems. Uh, moreover, in fact, there are reverse arrows. So, for example, your income um, also is um, going to be affected by whether you have health insurance, whether you needed medical care, whether you're healthy or unhealthy, by the health decisions you make. So you got a lot of confounding in this relationship. Moreover, no matter how many things you control for um, and measure, there are a whole bunch of things you're not going to be able to measure, a bunch of unobserved characteristics, genetics, belief in medicine, your wealth, and your assets. And so 
it's in this framework of the complex world we live in that um, a lot of the literature for understanding the effects of health insurance on health e exists. And so this is sort of the model in which one needs to um, have um, causal inference. And the sort of typical literature that looks at this says, well, what are the differences in health between people who have health insurance and, and don't have health insurance? And the problem is you have no idea what direction the arrows are going in in the vast majority of this literature. So when I got introduced to this literature um, with Helen a little more than 10 years ago, we um, looked at the literature, and um, John was on an Institute of Medicine panel. I was a sort of peripheral member of that, and we, we took a look at the literature. And what we found is that the vast majority of the literature, about a 1,000 studies, were essentially these observational studies that just showed differences between people who have health insurance and don't have health insurance. They controlled for what they could control for. But they were left with all these possible confounders. Okay? And um, this made it really impossible to interpret um, what, what, they, what they meant. And I think it's kind of worth noting that no one had written the study that said and st the presence of Medicare causes end-stage renal disease. And I think because on the one hand, that's an obvious and stupid um, confounder. On the other hand, it also reflects the interests of the people who were writing these studies. And there was a clear desire to find certain results among the people who were studying this sort of thing. And one saw this when one read the papers because pretty regularly everyone talked about confounding at least a fair number of these studies, but it's a tiny little paragraph, sort of like the recognition statement of the funder, and then one just moves on and concludes that expansion of health insurance will save lots of lives. Um, so that's where the literature was. Now, there were a few exceptions. There was one randomized trial that looked at the effects of health insurance. This was the RAND health insurance experiment. But the thing to remember about the RAND health insurance experiment is that it didn't really look at the effects of having insurance versus not having insurance. It only looked at the, nature, the effects of the nature of insurance. So we really had no randomized experiments that answered this question. It had never been done. The strongest parts of evidence that we've seen, and here um, I've said there are about less than 20 studies, and this is uh, at the time we started this, there are actually even fewer than that. They looked at policy changes as sort of natural experiments, and the, the most powerful of these were insurance coverage expansions. Basically, um, the establishment of Medicare in the United States with some examples, Canada for others, the establishment or expansion of Medicaid benefits. Largely, these were um, policy expansions, although some of the studies also looked at discrete changes in eligibility, for example, at age 65 and then look at people on before and after age 65. Um, seems like a fairly clean experiment, but, but actually not as easy to interpret as one um, might think. So these are some of the studies that came out of that literature. So you've got 1,000 articles, and then you winnow down to the sort of you know, 10 to 20 that actually think about causal inference in a fairly rigorous way. So one big set of them was um, um, sort of these experimental and quasi-experimental experimental studies in, in children, infants, and, 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 of course, mothers. And the, the results in these are a little variable. Some of them show improvements in child mortality. Some show improvements in low birth weight, um, um, survival in neonatal intensive care units. Others found no effect on birth outcomes. Um, but I would say most of them actually show improvements. And so I would conclude from looking at these sort of experiments that expansions in Medicaid probably helped these, um, the, the, the poor moms and, and their babies. Um, but that's really not the debate we face in the United States um, most recently. It's really about adults. So let me talk a little bit about some of the, the studies there. So the studies take a, a variety of forms. Um, some look at um, 
um, sort of things that would presumably exogenously change the likelihood of having um, insurance. So, for example, um, looking at um, there's a door study that looks at the effects of having private insurance. You need some sort of instrumental variable, something that, that drives these things. And they looked at things like state-level unemployment rates, unionization rates, tax rates that are used to address this endogeneity of insurance. And the, the critical element to remember in an instrumental variable, it needs to be a variable that causes some um, variable that you're interested in studying to change, but doesn't influence the outcome directly. And so the story you would want to tell is that unemployment rate decreases the likelihood of people getting health insur- having health insurance, and as a result, they have bad health outcomes. Okay, and so you can infer from that that people who have, are unemployed are going to have worse health because they're not going to have health insurance. Problem being, well, unemployment is stressful, and so it could be a confounding variable, and you could easily misinterpret that. So even that's not a perfect instrumental variable, but it's one you can think of. So the stronger ones looked at policy changes. So the Finn and Wachter is an example. In this case, a Veterans Administration cut some benefits, and they looked and saw what happened to the patients whose benefits were cut, cut and found that their blood pressure increased. And you can say, well, you know, how, how important is blood pressure? And actually, it's interesting. If you look at that study and you look at the Lurie studies listed below, um, which were also a sort of termination of benefit study, again, you see blood pressure changes. If you looked in the RAND health insurance experiment, you actually also found blood pressure changes. And in fact, blood pressure changes are one of the most consistent changes in health um, measures that people see with these insurance um, expansions. And you can say, well, boy, that's only um, one aspect of health. But the thing you need to remember is that the single most important cause of declining mortality in the United States over the past 40 years has been cardiovascular vascular disease, and probably the number one reason it's happened is decreases in blood pressure. So you shouldn't write this off as a a single isolated um, result. It's actually, I think, a very important result and, and a very meaningful one. It does, however, raise the question, could there have been other ways to go about um, improving blood pressure rather than you know, paying for health insurance? So something to think about. The Hadley and Weidman study is an example of the establishment of um, 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 sort of continuing health insurance, and in this case, again, a bunch of variables like union status, immigrant status, involuntary job loss, things like that are used as instrumental variables. It has a lot of the same problems as the, the door study. And then the, the other set of studies, really, that have been done have been um, Medicare studies, in essence. And these sort of follow um, two types. One is sort of the enactment studies. Um, the Finkelstein and McKnight and Lichtenberg studies are examples of these. These essentially looked at before-after studies in Medicare and showed after the establishment of Medicare, people above 65 um, had um, um, better health outcomes. Um, the CARD studies and the Polsky studies are a little different. They look at people with discrete changes changes from age 64 where they're not eligible to age 65 where they were, and they look at that very local change. Some of the challenges in that literature is that in order to really identify these effects, you have to look at um, very narrow age changes. So we know on average that people who are older are going to have worse health than people who are younger, so we can't compare 95-year-olds to 50-year-olds. So we have to really compare 64-year-olds to 66-year-olds, and those samples get smaller and smaller. And a lot of the debate around these things are related to the fact that this sort of real experiment here is actually a very narrow one. 
So this gives you a sense of the literature. And as you look at this list here, one of the things you'll see is that a lot of the studies are fairly recent. And in fact, many of the studies post-date the initial analysis that Helen and I did looking at um, the literature that existed at the time. There are also a few other um, studies looking at specific diseases, one by Dana Goldman looking at state-level policies to increase access to HIV therapies. Um, one of the big problems with these state-level um, studies is changes in access for one group are often motivated by um, financial concerns, for example, that may cause other policies to change at the same time. This makes them very difficult um, to, um, to study um, very cleanly, at least. So let me give you some sort of conclusions, at least, of how I think about this literature. The first is that um, the effects of health insurance on health are most clearly reflected by policy evaluations of insurance um, expansions, um, and that these um, sort of discrete changes in eligibility, for example, by age, can also be useful, although somewhat um, more um, limited. Um, overall, I think the evidence clearly supports that there are some effects of Medicaid and Medicare on health. And in adults, um, in particular, the control of hypertension seems um, very important. However, the studies are limited in that they don't um, compare alternative strategies. I mean, for example, one could think about what's the value of direct service provision? What would be the value of insurance expansions to the near elderly? And probably even um, um, more importantly, none of them are very tight estimates of the type that I think policy analysis would need in order to understand the complicated benefits and costs of, of health insurance policy. And the thing to remember is that we don't have health insurance simply to protect our health. We have it to protect our assets because it's important for the whole health care system. And so the idea that this whole um, policy decisions to be heavily driven by the debate, I think is fundamentally misguided. On the other hand, the sort of argument has been used because it sounds dramatic and look at all the people dying. And so that's where a lot of the politics are. But I don't think it's where the policy should be. And then the, the last thing I want to comment on is, is the audience that Helen and I wrote our paper for, in fact, was academics. We kind of got annoyed reading these thousand studies that again and again say the same thing and don't say it with any rigor. And we would be very happy if less journal space was taken up with those studies and more was allocated to higher quality studies. And I think one of the satisfying things about the, um, the results of having written this paper is that we saw a lot less of those bad studies getting published and a lot harder efforts by serious um, academics to do higher quality studies. And I would say that um, we still don't have all the evidence that we like. In fact, I think we need much more. But I think that the literature has shifted in a way that ultimately will help us um, produce better evidence. And I think John's going to talk about a lot of that um, over the next couple of minutes. And you can see some of where it's advanced, and maybe that will set us up for a discussion about what's needed at this point. So I think that's it. Thank you. Good afternoon, and I appreciate the invitation from Michael to, to join you today to discuss this important topic. And, uh, and what I particularly appreciate is sort of the opportunity uh, to speak to an audience who, you know, I might not naturally uh, uh, work with in, in, in my day-to-day -day work at Harvard or some of the organizations, medical organizations and others that I participate in, uh, with a political perspective that's, that's different from my own. But I think what's important about a, a session like we're having today is 
to really try to shine more light on the topic. And I think, you know, so much has been sort of caught up in the, in the politics of this. And as Michael mentioned, some of what stimulated this session today was the, the debate that's gone on sort of in, in the blogosphere, so to speak. Uh, and I think to the extent that sort of people with different perspectives, different political and policy perspectives on a topic like this can come together. There's actually an opportunity for constructive progress, because I think sort of no one side has all the answers on this on this question. And uh, and I think what we should all be striving for is better evidence uh, coupled with sort of underlying values to say, where can we achieve optimal uh, health outcomes and value for the American people? Uh, so, as Michael mentioned, there, there was uh, sort of a series of, of sort of discussions in, in the, the, the news media and, and periodicals, um, one of which was a, a recent article earlier this month, a, a commentary by Megan McArdle, really questioning, as, as, as Michael mentioned, this assumption that uh, people who lack health insurance are dying in the streets and, and, and uh, you know, without sort of uh, reforming the whole health care system, we're suffering those consequences. And, and I think this sort of questioning and, and challenging the evidence, uh, you know, similar to the way uh, uh, David and, and Helen Levy have done in some of their academic work, uh, is important for sort of pushing the field forward and finding sort of trying to see if we can find common ground. What do we really know? Where do we need better evidence? And, and where might we just agree to disagree uh, after reviewing that evidence? Um, you know, one of the comments in, in, in Megan's commentary was, was really questioning, do we essentially know whether health insurance has any more impact on your health than, than lack of flood insurance? And, uh, you know, and that sort of triggered a response uh, sort of favorable and unfavorable from, from people who agreed or disagreed with, with uh, her reading of the evidence. And so what I'd like to do is, is uh, from a different perspective, you know, acknowledge this was a provocative uh, uh, statement, but say what do we know if, uh, in terms of, of, of whether this is a, is a true assertion uh, and is there other evidence out there sort of beyond what's been, been picked up in, uh, by Ezra Klein or Megan McArdle or others who have commented recently on this topic? And come back to our original question for today and to sort of jump to my conclusion and then, then walk you through uh, the, you know, the story as I see it. And, and I have to say my presentation is informed both by my work as a, as a researcher thinking about this issue as well as as a practicing physician in Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, David and I share that in common, taking care of people with many of the conditions uh, where we may or may not see the effects of health insurance and, and, and more importantly, effective health care. So where do I think we have strong evidence that, that health insurance makes a difference uh, and health care uh, that's provided by that insurance? Well, I, I, David has alluded to hypertension. I'll walk through a little bit more of the story. What's the process? I think we don't just want to look at the outcomes sort of the end of the day or in a large population, but think, is there a clinical story, a policy story here that makes sense or not? And can we sort of build a chain of evidence, or are we left with just uncertainty at the end of the day and, and differences of opinion? Um, others where I think we have strong new quasi-experimental evidence relate to diabetes, heart disease, depression. Uh, so all four of those first conditions quite common in the U.S. population, particularly in middle-aged and older adults. Uh, and then one that's more rare, but where we have some of the most profound evidence of benefits of health insurance coverage and coverage expansions would relate to HIV infection. And then I'll also just mention in passing, we've got very strong observational evidence around types of cancers where we know screening and effective treatment are, are, are available, and, uh, and those who have insurance are much more likely to get appropriate screening and effective treatment. So breast, cervical, and colon cancer are ones where we've made a lot of medical progress in the past 30 years in both screening and treatment, contrasted with some other types of cancer, such as pancreatic cancer, which we still don't have uh, good ways to diagnose early, and we don't see any beneficial effect of insurance coverage on 
on those types of cancers. And then one, most of these conditions affect people uh, after the age of 40, with the exception of, of HIV infection, uh, and then major trauma, another area where we have strong observational data uh, that's, I think, stronger than when, when David and Helen originally reviewed this literature, uh, showing that when we look, for example, Joe Doyle's work in Wisconsin at the effect of uh, uh, people in motor vehicle accidents, where it's 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 an event that they they have uh, little or no control over, and they've actually he was able to do some fairly creative things controlling for risk preferences. For example, by looking at a subgroup that did not have auto insurance, but some had health insurance and some did not, actually showing uh, strong uh, benefits of having health insurance even in the absence of auto insurance as a proxy for risk preferences. And then another point that I want to emphasize is sort of taking a more refined view of the data. Uh, it's not that health insurance always matters for all the people, but it especially matters for certain groups in the population that are most likely to benefit. And one group where that we have some stronger evidence is in low-income adults, where it's not surprising that the costs of health care would matter, as opposed to higher-income adults, even if they are uninsured, they can purchase the care that they need in the absence of insurance. Uh, and that low-income group, though, represents about two-thirds of all uninsured adults. And when I say low-income, I'm referring to the folks below 200 percent of the poverty level, where the rates of uninsurance are on the order of about 30 to 35 percent. A strong role for public insurance, Medicaid and the CHIP Children's Health Insurance Program, um, and some role for private insurance, but a minority of folks in those lowest income categories. Another reason this is an important topic is because sort of how we interpret the evidence for, for the American public has, has a role in shaping uh, uh, people's beliefs about sort of the strengths and weaknesses of our health care system, uh, and then, as I'll show you, has an impact on the way people think about the need and, and value of health care reform and, and coverage expansion. So uh, Bob Blendon and colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health have done a series of uh, national surveys over the past 17 years. Uh, most recently, in 2009, they found that a little over half of Americans believe that uninsured people can get the care that they need. And that figure has fluctuated from about 43 percent uh, at the time the Clinton health plan was being debated, up to the mid-50s as we see today and then um, in 1999 as well. And this is sort of the example of, of how both sort of uh, political affiliation and views of sort of how the uninsured fare in our health care system influence people's uh, opinions about uh, what we should do with, uh, in, in expanding coverage or not. Um, and so you can see uh, Democrats shown in the blue line, generally uh, a strong majority uh, support uh, uh, health care reform and, and, and universal coverage, regardless of, of how the uninsured are doing. Uh, for independents and Republicans, there's a, a sort of a much stronger sort of mediating effect. Those who feel that it's very difficult uh, for the uninsured or, or, or they, they're unable to get the care that they need are much more likely to support uh, some form of health care reform than those uh, who view it not as a problem, that people do get the care they need. So I, one of the observational studies that, that David was alluding to was, was one that colleagues and I did about 10 years ago using national survey data, not so much to find the causal effect of health insurance on health, but just to understand what barriers do the uninsured face in the healthcare system. And we stratify on people's underlying health status here. And what you can see is if, if you're in excellent or very good health, only a, a sort of a minority of, of the, the folks in those groups uh, really had barriers to seeking care that were related to health care costs, even if they were uninsured for more than a year. And that has to do with the folks, the fact that folks in those uh, healthier categories 
don't need much medical care, and, and, and you know, that's you know, something uh, that, that's good for the healthcare system. We'd like to have as many people as possible in those, those, those categories of excellent or very good health. But as we go down the scale to those who are in fair or poor health that may represent 10 to 15 percent of the population, what we see is that uh, folks who are uninsured, particularly those in the long-term uninsured category, which was about two-thirds of adults in our study, uh, these are people between the ages of 18 and 64, uh, half to 70 percent of uh, folks in fair or poor health who are uninsured uh, going without needed care in their view because of the costs of care. And, and that's where uh, we really should be particularly concerned about how well our health care system is performing. And so when, when we teach our medical students and residents about diagnosis and treatment, we oftentimes talk about the, the differential diagnosis and the diagnosis of exclusion uh, being sort of the clinical diagnosis after we rule other things out. Well, unfortunately, in our healthcare system, too often being uninsured has been a social diagnosis of exclusion. So now I'd like to sort of turn to a different perspective on the evidence, and, and uh, I look forward to, to your comments and, and questions in our discussion. Uh, how does insurance affect health? What are the mechanisms that we can begin to understand from the stronger types of studies that David alluded to, these quasi-experimental and experimental studies? And I'm going to focus on hypertension, diabetes, and heart disease, because that's where we have some of the strongest evidence. And these are conditions that affect about 20 percent of U.S. adults at age 35 and affect up to 60 percent of adults uh, by the time they're 64, just prior to becoming eligible for Medicare. So very important conditions for people in, in middle age, uh, the, the, the types of people that, that David and I care for on a daily basis. So one of those quasi-experimental studies looked at a contraction of Medicaid back in the early 1980s in, in, uh, in uh, Southern California, uh, where in a uh, sort of a, a, a quasi-random way, some people lost their Medicaid coverage while others were allowed to continue that coverage. And this slide shows what happened to people with high blood pressure or hypertension, um, where those um, who were destined to lose their Medicaid coverage actually had better blood, blood pressure control. So 90 is a threshold that we aim for as physicians, trying to keep people's diastolic blood pressure below 90, because above that range is where the risk of heart, heart attacks, strokes, kidney failures start to ramp up. What we saw was that those who lost their Medicaid coverage, their diastolic blood pressure went up by 10 points over the ensuing six months, while those who were able to continue, uh, recognizing that these are low-income folks that don't have a lot of other options if they lose their Medicaid, they actually saw improvements in their, in their blood pressure control. And we actually began to see some of the mechanisms of what was going on for those folks. So People who were destined to lose their coverage, 92% had a regular source of primary care, a regular doctor they were seeing for their blood pressure treatment at the baseline. That dropped to 40% at six months, and by one year only rose to 50%. So suggesting that the role of primary care for a common condition like high blood pressure, where we have effective treatment that's relatively inexpensive, uh, is very important for people's health. And then David alluded to the RAND health insurance experiment, sort of recognizing that no one was randomized to be uninsured in that, in that study, but they were randomized to differing levels of, of, of copayments and cost sharing. And what they found, and, and interesting, they didn't find many health effects, but in fact, in this study that was conducted in the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, that free care relative to high levels of cost sharing was associated with much better blood pressure control, and that effect was more pronounced for people in the low-income categories. So even though these might look like relatively small differences of two to three points in average blood pressure, those, those differences are actually associated with significant improvements in health outcomes related to, to high blood pressure. And so what they saw was people who had uh, more generous insurance coverage with hypertension had more contact with their physicians, were more likely to have their hypertension diagnosed and treated appropriately, 
were more compliant with the recommendations of their, of their doctors. And this was the one area where they actually saw health insurance uh, having a design having an effect on, on mortality, uh, with mortality in the more well-insured group going down by 10 percent, and that number was actually 15 percent relative risk reduction in mortality for the low-income group with high blood pressure. So just to fill in the story, I'd like to then present some more recent quasi-experimental evidence. So colleagues and I looked at what happens to people just before and after the age of 65, where the patients themselves serve as their own controls, and that, that addresses some of the concerns about unobserved variables that, that, that David mentioned. And the longitudinal nature of the study also gives it a, a potentially a more powerful interpretation. And what we see here is for people who are uninsured before age 65, with diabetes or hypertension, they're only about half as likely to get appropriate cholesterol testing, an area where we've made a lot of progress in the past 20 years in terms of diagnosing this risk factor, and we have effective treatments, and, and they're cost-effective as well. What we see is very soon after age 65, those folks who were previously uninsured with these chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension catch up very quickly to the, those who were previously insured. And that translates into improved health outcomes. This is a, another quasi-experimental study we, we uh, published last year um, after David's most recent review was, was, was published, uh, where we looked at control of blood sugar, blood pressure, and cholesterol. And what we found was that less educated uh, uh, Medicare beneficiaries and those from minority groups, groups that historically are much less likely to have insurance before age 65, had much greater uh, uh, control of their conditions and, and significant narrowing of the disparity. So the blue bars show sort of the fact that the blood, uh, that, uh, blood sugar control was much worse for these adults before age 65, and fairly rapidly after age 65, and significantly so, was, was reduced to, to a minimal uh, uh, disparity uh, between those who were, uh, had better or worse coverage before 65. And then one more study to sort of fill in this picture is some work we've done looking at trends in health uh, measured in many different ways, people's sort of overall perception of their health as well as their mobility, uh, their physical functioning, their mental function functioning. Um, in a study we published a couple years ago, here again, using quasi-experimental approaches to look at trends uh, in, 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 in reported health. Uh, the yellow line shows those who are uninsured before age 65 and what happens to their health after age 65 versus the, the dashed line in the lower right corner, which is what we would have expected for a health trend. So the uninsured have worse health beginning at age 55. That gap is narrowing from age, excuse me, is widening from age 55 to 65. And then we see an, an interesting inflection in the trend, sort of using individuals who were insured or uninsured as their own controls. Uh, and we see uh, significant improvements that are sustained out to age 72, which was how long we were able to follow folks in this national cohort of the health and retirement study. So do we have evidence that, that uh, health insurance improves health? I would argue on the basis of, of, of these more rigorous studies for these common conditions, yes, the evidence is better than it was five or ten years ago when, when, when David and, and Helen began uh, assessing the, 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 the evidence on this topic. I think the thornier issue is what do we know about health insurance coverage and mortality and sort of recognizing that not everything we do in health care saves lives for people with insurance. Um, so there's a complex relation of insurance to mortality, and I won't dwell on these points now because I think we'll have the opportunity to uh, discuss them in, in, in Michael's remarks and, and, and the discussion afterwards. But 
what I'd like to emphasize is that the benefits of health insurance are concentrated in sicker and poorer adults, and that's where we see the, the potential effects on mortality. Uh, that the timing of these effects depends on whether we're talking about chronic or more acute conditions, um, that people's underlying health status at the time we measure it may be an influence, influenced by their prior insurance coverage, uh, recognizing that we have excessive medical care, and some of that is harmful to people. So sometimes giving uh, overly generous coverage may produce harms. And then insurance is only a first step. If we don't give people access to better care, including appropriate medications, we're not going to improve their outcomes. And that's articulated well here in a sort of what was called sort of the, the, the voltage drops from insurance to high-quality care uh, that John Eisenberg uh, uh, published over a decade ago, uh, where having insurance, the availability and the enrollment insurance is only a first step in a, in a multi-step process to actually having better quality care and better outcomes. So I'll close just talking about some of this evidence on mortality. Uh, there is this uh, Institute of Medicine report from 2002 that I would point you to that was the subject of much of the recent debate. Is this 18,000 figure of excess deaths uh, accurate or not? Um, we do have better evidence when we looked at specific conditions in this report um, using some of the RAND health insurance uh, data, some of the data on HIV and breast cancer, sort of the conditions where we have better evidence that, um, that health insurance matters, we see more specific and more rigorous effects on mortality. And what new insights do we have since 2002? Well, we have four national cohort studies published in the last few years, uh, three of which showed a, a 35 to 43 percent uh, increase in mortality for adults who are uninsured, uh, two focused on middle-aged adults, and then two latter studies focused on adults of all ages, one showing a positive effect and, and one not showing an effect. And then three quasi-experimental studies that David alluded to. And these raise some interesting questions that that 18,000 figure may not be totally accurate, but the quasi-experimental studies suggest that there's potentially some risk that we're underestimating the mortality effects because those unobserved variables may indicate that the uninsured are healthier than we actually measure or the insured are sicker because obviously people seek to get insurance uh, when they notice their health is declining in ways that we can't always observe. Um, I think I'll save this slide and, and, and just move on, but in the discussion we might talk about some of the differences between some of the, the large national cohort studies and why um, two of, three of the four studies do show significant effects and one don't. And just highlight a couple points from the work that colleagues and I have done, um, where we see that about half of this unadjusted um, um, uh, difference in mortality, roughly a doubling for the uninsured in their 50s and early 60s, is explained by many variables uh, that we can measure. And just because a study is observational does not necessarily mean that, that it's necessarily wrong. Uh, really, it, it pushes us to ask, what might we be missing? What unobserved characteristics could we be left with? And so this adjusted mortality difference shown on the right-hand side, we actually did some what we call sensitivity analyses, trying to figure out how big would an effect have to be that we missed uh, to, to really explain away this difference that we find. And so what we estimated after controlling for about 30 different variables, including some that, that many other studies did not have access to, is that an omitted variable would have to be as common as smoking, so about a quarter of the population, and have a greater effect on mortality than we know smoking does to account for this uh, persistent difference in mortality. And so I think to some degree, while we can question the observational data, we have to think, what could this omitted variable be, and is there likely to be one as strong as, as smoking omitted from a study like this? And then just to highlight a couple points that I mentioned earlier, we see these mortality effects concentrated in people with chronic disease. So the folks who at the beginning of this eight-year period had diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, that's where the difference is concentrated on the left-hand side of this slide. 
if you don't have one of those conditions at baseline, uh, really there's relatively little effect of health insurance on uh, people's likelihood of dying over the next eight years. And a second point is that it's concentrated in people in the lowest income category. So if you're in the upper three quartiles of income, um, smaller differences, not statistically significant. Uh, if you're in the lowest income group, uh, highly significant difference. So to wrap up, would universal coverage reduce mortality? Uh, from two of the um, uh, quasi-experimental studies we have shown here, maybe not at the time Medicare was introduced in 1965, and maybe not immediately at age 65 relative to age 64. But we do have stronger evidence uh, for folks with HIV infection. Insurance uh, may reduce mortality by as much as 80 percent, giving people access to effective drugs that are life-saving. Uh, for patients with serious cardiac conditions, uh, we know that coverage expansions or contractions can affect their absolute risk of death by about 4 to 5 percent, uh, some work by Kevin Volpe at the University of Pennsylvania. And then some, most recently some work that, that we've just published this month looking at the long-term effect of Medicare on the mortality of those who are uninsured before age 65. And what we see is that uh, actually starting at age 57, there's sort of a steady rise in the risk, the relative risk of mortality for the uninsured relative to the insured. And without the presence of Medicare at age 65, that trend would suggest a, basically a threefold increased risk of mortality uh, by the age of 73. And what we see is a significant attenuation of that risk, so basically a flattening of the curve of the mortality risk in a quasi-experimental design uh, looking at patients' own mortality trends over time. So um, those of you who might be interested in sort of reading uh, more broadly on the, the, the literature since 2002, the Institute of Medicine report issued uh, last year and available on their website, and coming back to the question we started with, I would assert that uh, for the 75 percent of Americans who will experience high blood pressure, diabetes, and the other conditions shown on this slide, so a sizable majority by, of folks by their 50s and early 60s, health insurance will improve their health. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thank you, David, also. Um, I may not have mentioned this in my introduction, but uh, John and David were lucky to have them here because they really are two of the leading lights in this area of health services research. Um, for my remarks, I want to make two broad points. The first is that the answer to the question, would universal coverage improve health, is neither yes nor no. It's maybe. But we don't know enough to give a definitive yes or no. And so it follows that we can't know whether universal coverage or the legislation that President Obama just signed into law two days ago would save hundreds of thousands of lives, as some claim. In fact, there's enough uncertainty that I think we have to leave our minds open to the possibility that expanding uh, health insurance coverage, universal coverage, the, the law that President Obama just signed, uh, might not improve population health at all. The second point, I think, is actually the more important one. It has to do with something that David and his co-author, Helen Levy, conclude in their survey of the literature. And that is what, what, that whatever health improvements we might achieve by expanding health insurance coverage, uh, the key issue is whether we could achieve even greater health improvements with the same or less money. And there's no evidence that expanding health insurance coverage saves more lives per dollar spent than other interventions would, such as programs targeted at specific diseases or nutrition or even education. 
And what that reveals, I think, is that the law that President Obama just signed is not about promoting health or saving lives. In fact, showing, uh, supporting that law shows how, not how much you care about saving lives, but how little you care about saving lives. And I'll say, have more to say about that in a moment. First, would universal coverage improve health? Most, but not all, of the available research, and we've heard about some of it already, suggests that expanding health insurance does improve health. Those, uh, but I would argue that all of those studies suffer from one or more flaws. First, uh, they may show a correlation between health insurance and better health, but because they don't control for all relevant variables, it may be that some combination of a preference for risky behaviors, dislike of doctors, social status, or other factors are actually what's behind that relationship. The strongest correlations appear in studies that focus on specific populations. We're talking about people with conditions for which there are effective treatments, like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, HIV, and groups who are more likely to have those conditions, such as those who are near age 65 and or who have low incomes. Now, these studies, uh, some of them suffer from the same problem of not controlling for all relevant variables. They also pose an additional problem which is that we don't know whether or to what extent their results will hold up when we expand coverage to people who are not in those groups. About 40% of the uninsured are between the ages of 19 and 34. About a third earn more than twice the federal poverty level, and uh, presumably many of the rest have low incomes because they're young and at the beginning of their careers. <coughs> Excuse me. And 89% of the uninsured report that they are in good to excellent health. Now, here it's worth remembering that medicine does not only heal. It also harms. The same Institute of Medicine that has estimated that we lose, uh, that, that 20,000 Americans die every year because they lack health insurance, has also estimated that 40, I'm sorry, 50 to 100,000 Americans die every year due to medical errors, and medicine can even hurt patients when, when no errors occur. So expanding health insurance coverage uh, and and expanding health insurance coverage expands access to all medicine, helpful and harmful alike. And so when we expand coverage to people who are less likely to benefit from medicine, we increase the probability that they will undergo necessary, unnecessary treatments and that they'll suffer harm. So even if the studies on specific diseases or sp specific groups do show true health improvements from health insurance, we still don't know how broad expansions of health insurance coverage will impact health because uh, those effects will almost certainly be diluted. Another important shortcoming is that these studies tend to focus on Medicare or private health insurance coverage. Yet nearly half of the coverage gains in the new law will come from uh, enrolling people in the Medicaid program. Expanding access to Medicaid may not have the same impact on health as expanding access to Medicare or private insurance because Medicaid provides less access to medical care. Uh, these studies also don't capture how the very act of government expanding coverage might reduce health. For example, insurance expansions divert resources away from other uses that might improve health as well. Better housing and better education are two examples. The Medicare program locks American medicine, this is something that uh, healthcare researchers complain about uh, a lot, locks the practice of medicine into a fee-for-service payment system that encourages intensive procedures and discourages prevention and coordinated care and even inhibits the market's ability to use financial incentives to reduce medical errors. So even if becoming eligible for Medicare improves health, health outcomes might still be worse compared to a world not subject to Medicare's price and exchange controls and the other rigidities that Medicare introduces into the practice of medicine. 
None of these studies can measure those effects uh, because they interfere with the controls. You can't compare health insurance expansions to a counterfactual, uh, counterfactual world that is not permitted to exist. Now, we could look at all of these studies and say, close enough. But I submit that that's not good enough because healthcare research has a habit of producing results that point in the other direction. Richard Kronick's observational study that found no relationship between insurance and health outcomes is one example. In the 1970s, a lot of smart people believed that comprehensive insurance would make people healthier than bare-bones coverage would. The Rand Health Insurance Experiment found that people, which I think is uh, maybe the largest social experiment ever conducted, or certainly one of the largest, found that people with comprehensive coverage did receive 40% more services than people with bare-bones coverage, but they ended up no healthier on average. In fact, the additional coverage may have even done some harm uh, in that it restricted uh, um, uh, or there are more limited activity days uh, among that group. And the RAND study is the most reliable study that we're going to discuss today. In addition, Amy Finkelstein and Robin McKnight found that uh, the introduction of Medicare had no effect on elderly mortality in the first 10 years of its operation. Now, it may be that the mortality gains would not appear in the first decade or that improvements in medicine mean that insurance is now more beneficial than it was back then or that the benefits of broad coverage expansions are hidden by the harm caused by periods of prior uninsurance, and those are all uh, possibilities. But if we decide that 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 must be what's going on, then we're simply assuming that health insurance improves health rather than establishing it. So will universal coverage improve health? I would argue we don't really know. And unfortunately, even after we spend more than $1 trillion now uh, on the effort, we probably still won't know. Now, we may disagree on that question, but I think uh, there will be more agreement on David's other point. There is no, that there is no evidence that uh, spending money on health insurance would save more lives than spending money on other strategies. Though we can't be certain, I expect that, uh, that most experts would agree that Congress could probably save more lives with less money by investing in smaller programs targeting vulnerable populations. David has suggested um, sending hypertension vans into low-income neighborhoods. That's just one possibility. But the fact that President Obama has uh, signed this law despite the lack of evidence that it's the most cost-effective way of proving health or a cost-effective way of of improving health reveals that the purpose of this legislation, I think, is not to improve health. Think about it. If Congress wanted to improve health, what would they do? They would, if they were really trying to save lives, they would conduct experiments. They would fund insurance expansions in some areas. They would send hypertension vans into other areas and diabetes vans and HIV vans and maybe even uh, experiments with higher payments for trauma care uh, for the uninsured, and they would see what saves the most lives per dollar spent, and then they would scale up those programs. Uh, but enacting this law, instead of collecting that information, uh, by doing so, they're potentially foregoing even greater health gains. They may hope or expect to save some lives, but their behavior actually reveals that what they're trying to that they're, they're trying to achieve other things too. Maybe financial security or reducing the anxiety of the uninsured, and there's nothing wrong with those goals. But suppose that this law would save 20,000 lives per year. And, and suppose that, uh, that spending the same amount on targeted programs, we learned, would save 30,000 lives per year. If you enacted this law in the face of that information, what you'd implicitly be saying is that you are willing to let 10,000 people die for the sake of those other X factors that you're trying to achieve. Likewise, the fact that Congress and the President enacted this law despite the possibility that other strategies might 
save more lives also shows that they're willing to let some people die to serve whatever those X factors are. Now, keep in mind, it almost certainly would have been easier uh, to fund uh, hypertension vans or HIV vans or Medicare coverage for people with specific illnesses, not unlike the end-stage renal disease program in Medicare, maybe Medicare coverage just for people with HIV. Um, It would be a lot easier to get those things through Congress than it would have been to pursue this law. So when President Obama signed this law, I think he was showing not how much he cares about saving lives. Ironically, he was showing how little he cares because he was signaling that the law revealed – but by signing this law, he was signaling that he is willing to sacrifice some lives to achieve those other X factors, whatever they may be. It's been said that universal coverage is a moral issue. It's a moral imperative that we provide health insurance to all Americans. I'm not aware of any moral code that says that we should sacrifice some lives to provide financial security to others. So um, on financial security, I think that there, you know, there is some evidence uh, about whether universal coverage would provide that. Amy Finkelstein and Robin McKnight uh, found that financial security that Medicare created was outweighed by the financial insecurity, insecurity that it created, both in terms of the tax burden and the excess burden of taxation, the reduced economic growth that came from uh, the taxes necessary to finance the program. As noted earlier, they found no mortality benefits. They were not able to measure any other health benefits, but again, uh, any such health improvements are open to question. Now, I think that the X factor that best explains the push for universal coverage is what economists call signaling. Supporters want a government guarantee of universal coverage in part because they wish to signal to others that they are compassionate or that the United States is a compassionate nation. I think that's an interesting possibility for two reasons. The first is that it suggests that a big reason people support universal coverage is the psychic benefits that it provides to them. So if it turns out that this law requires drastic reform, I think we may run into the same problem that Charles Murray identified in our welfare system, that a principal obstacle to reform won't be uh, – is is not the harm that it would cause the ostensible beneficiaries of the program, but the harm that it would cause the donors. And the second reason I think that uh, signaling is an interesting possibility is that support for universal coverage is only an effective signal of compassion uh, to the extent that expanding health insurance coverage improves health and is a cost-effective way of improving health. If either of those is not true, and if people come to understand that either of those is not true, then universal coverage uh, – Uh, doesn't appear all that compassionate, and it would cease to be uh, a signal of compassion to others. So with that, uh, we're done with all of our presentations, and I look forward to getting your questions. I ask that you wait until uh, one of our assistants brings the microphone around, make sure that uh, you are asking a question, and that uh, you identify, uh, you let us know who you are and uh, identify any affiliations that would be of interest. How about, I think the gentleman on the aisle had to stand up first. It, oh, I just try to get a little volume in my voice? You've got to give it a second, but then it starts. Oh, okay. I'm Steve Hankin, and I have no affiliation. Um, when I was growing up, they, they used to talk about major medical insurance and the rest. And as far as I could see, um, what, what today is labeled as not major medical is really not insurance. It's not against catastrophic. It really shouldn't. It's just insurance in name only. My question to you is, does that distinction between major medical and and other types of what I would call just medical care, 
Would that factor into your answers or your prediction? Are you mainly talking about not not major medical, but really medical care? And uh, why do why do you think that the, that there's any any uh, need to have studies based on that? As a, that distinction. See, I wasn't so long. So, you know, an important point uh, that you raise is, is what is actually the content of the insurance that we're comparing, and, you know, whether it's in the RAND health insurance experiment or some of these uh, quasi-experimental studies. And uh, I think we don't know as much about that as we could or should. Uh, we know what it means to be uninsured, but we don't always know how long people have been uninsured as, as one measure. And for those who have insurance, typically we're comparing private insurance of any kind uh, to being uninsured, and that so that's whatever mix. They, these are generally nationally representative samples, but it's whatever mix of private insurance coverage is out there at the time that that, that the cohort was assembled and, and surveyed. Uh, and we don't tend to have as much detail. We'll know some issues, for example, whether prescription drug coverage was part of the insurance benefit, and that does at least when we look at chronic conditions like hypertension and diabetes. It seems that it's not just a matter of having coverage, but having some access to effective medications makes a difference. So that's a case where the major medical coverage or catastrophic coverage alone may not be enough. Uh, you know, if you're talking about trauma care, though, maybe it really is, you know, the, the, the catastrophic coverage that people need in their sort of younger adult years. So, uh, you know, I think one opportunity that, you know, to the extent that the sort of the current health reform is, is sustained and, you know, through whatever challenges it's going to face is I think we could have much more experimentation and, and better gathering evidence about the design of insurance in different ways and allowing more choice and, and sort of evaluating uh, different ways of designing insurance benefits that give people sort of different levels of control over the, how they exercise their, their insurance benefits and sort of understanding sort of where that has a, a more or less effect on health and, and, and using that to sort of redesign benefits. Yeah, well, let me comment also. Um, so your question goes at the core of why insurance exists. And the traditional economic model of insurance is that we buy insurance to um, diversify ourselves against large financial risks. So, so given that, as a first-order approach, you would think about things like prevention as things that we shouldn't insure because it's fairly predictable that we're going to need those things, and therefore people should invest in them if it's worth it to them to do so. And the biggest benefits of, um, of prevention are in improved health. The cost savings are usually sort of small and down the road. So based on that, one might believe that, in fact, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to cover prevention through insurance. It makes more sense to cover sort of major medical. And there is that, that perspective. Now, you can take a sort of behavioral economics view and argue, well, maybe you should cover it anyway. There's moral hazard. You should make it cheap to signal to people. You can argue that you know, there, are, there are reasons to do it. But the complexity of this, and I, and I think the complexity of financing health care through insurance, also needs to be cognizant of the politics of this. And if you go back to the design of Medicare, Okay, Medicare was based largely on the design of private insurance policies. Private insurance policies were created largely by providers um, in the Depression era in order to create demand for their products. And, and the, it was insurance turned on its head in a lot of ways. They have, for example, lifetime limits on benefits, which no policy would ever have if you're trying to take care of people and populations. On the other hand, um, you would want to put it, if your goal was to make sure you had enough money in the fund that most people, when they came in, could get paid, okay, i.e., their care could get paid, meaning a doctor could get paid. 
In other words, the complexity is that insurance policies get designed by providers. They reflect their interests, and they don't always serve the interests of patients. And so one of the complexities we have is that we're not choosing, at least at the moment, between the sort of ideal health insurance system. We're choosing between the health insurance system we have, which is sadly a really inefficient one for structural problems we're still struggling to get over. Okay, and, and that, so those are some of the, the realities of this. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't cover prevention. Um, I, I, I am just saying let's be realistic about the complexity of this. And I think I come down exactly where John comes down, which is in the end you need really good data to understand what are the consequences of different forms of design. But I just add to it a set of realism that even with that good data, there are a lot of political interests that don't necessarily align with the, well the, the best interests of patients, and we're going to have to overcome those. Wow, lots of hands. Um, how about, I, I think the, the gentleman in the, uh, in the red tie on the, in the corner right there, right in front of you, getting warmer. There you are. John Mullen with uh, no affiliation relevant to this, this discussion. Um, I wonder if the experience of other developed democracies is, is, is relevant to this process. Uh, all others, the way I understand it, have universal health care, and uh, many of them have better overall results on a macro level uh, than the United States does. I, I think in life expectancy uh, and infant mortality among them. Um, can that be explained away by the variables of, uh, of more tense lifestyles and obesity? Uh, I should think that that would be very relevant evidence, but n no one has talked about uh, other countries' experience. I'm willing to go. I, 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 I think the simplest answer is we don't really know. <laughs> there are a lot of other things that explain differences between countries, socioeconomic differences and inequality, and um, um, the education, culture, a, a bunch of other things that could explain components of this. And so it's hard to look at cross-national comparisons and know whether it's our health system or well, or whether whether it's it's other things. Um, so that's one issue. The other issue I just comment on is, you know, some of the sort of debate about the U.S. healthcare system also has to be understood in its global context, which is a very complicated issue. In other words, you know, we've traditionally, I think, probably put a lot more money into this sector than we need needed to. But on the other hand, we've created incentives for innovation, which has benefited not just us, but the whole world. And it's, so I think we've created a healthcare system that's almost certainly, at any given point in time, much less efficient than it could be. On the other hand, over time, it probably has been one of the big drivers of innovation, and we've been immense beneficiaries of that, as has the rest of the world. So one of the things I wonder about is what happens you know, to the world health system as the United States adopts you know, a sort of more European model and um, there's less investment. There, you know, already you can see drug company budgets falling and things like that. And you know, one answer is, well, we're all going to be worse off. The other answer is, everyone else is finally going to bite the bullet, recognize that public is that um, healthcare expenditure is a public good, and start investing in these things. And maybe we'll find you know international treaties for cooperation and in healthcare investment. But I can't tell you that's going to happen. Um, but it's the type of force one has to think about. The, uh, the, the usual metrics that are used to compare the U.S. to other nations are life expectancy, infant mortality. There are other things, aside from our healthcare systems, that go into determining those uh, uh, outcomes, as, as David mentioned. 
we have right now in the pipeline here at Cato a study that we've commissioned from a, a, a couple of scholars to look at as many different international comparisons as they could find, try to uh, tease out does any uh, one nation or, or type of system uh, perform better on health outcomes than others. And what they found is the results are across the map. Some nations do better in some things than others, but it's uh, but uh, no one uh, leads the pack. And sometimes the results are difficult to interpret. Uh, I think that there were some studies that uh, showed the U.S. did not, not do as well in treating end-stage renal disease as other nations do. Uh, which, but it's hard to know how to interpret that because, as was mentioned earlier, uh, the treatment of end-stage renal disease is almost an entirely government-financed enterprise in the United States. And um, uh, also building on uh, what David said, the, the, the same authors, we've already, uh, the same scholars, we've already published a study uh, of theirs looking into medical innovation, which is usually left out of uh, most cross-national comparisons, finding that the U.S., when it comes to basic medical sciences, diagnostics, therapeutics, uh, um, often produces more new medical innovations than, um, than all other countries combined. And yes, it's hard to know, how, okay, how do we fold those in uh, to these international comparisons and, and, and try to weight them and figure out, okay, who really is doing the most to, to promote health? We call that one bending the productivity curve, for lack of a, of a better title. On the aisle here? Ma'am? Thank you. Is it on? Yeah. Um, I find it a bit curious to hear um, all of you say we don't have enough research, we don't have enough data, we don't have this. I mean, we've been studying healthcare for for years. This is not just happening yesterday. So I, I find it a bit disingenuous. I, I will acknowledge this. I've worked in healthcare and I started out my professional career, career at Mass General. You're both from teaching hospitals and teaching schools. Let's let's get down to this now. There. Are, uh, so I want to ask you. One, I don't want to hear percentages. I want to hear numbers in the study that, you, that you're presenting. Because you could have a 95% cure rate, but you've only had 10 people in the study. End-stage renal disease or chronic diseases, you're going to die from. Now, now we've got to get into discussion about this. And the second thing is, so this is, you know, I, I really find this, uh, at, well, I, a bit curious. At any rate, and the second thing I want to hear is if, and I don't think this is going to happen, I don't think about my parents when I was growing up, if you eliminated the insurance person and just had me, because I have been without health insurance, going to UDOCs, working out a payment schedule where they didn't have to file or submit paperwork, would that be more efficient than Medicare and Medicaid? And And obviously we do need to do something. So I have to disagree with Mr. Cannon and perhaps the Cato. I think what has been signed into law is really a bit overwhelming. Uh, but is, there the, is, it, is it realistic to think that we'll get to be able to eliminate the insurance person and have a direct contact with the doc or are we going to you know, have what's going on? Because Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. That is not Medicare. So as they talk about that, so David, universal. Do you want to take the insurance question yeah, again? And the numbers. I mean, wow. let's get real here. 
Okay, well, so uh, the, the, uh, just say about the numbers, I'm completely sympathetic with your comment about the numbers. I think th that's exactly what we've been arguing. We want we want better numbers. We we don't have them. I. Of course you do. Yeah, and sometimes these these studies have been calibrated or sort of adjusted to try to produce those numbers. But I, I can't tell you there's I didn't do these studies. I can only tell you what's there. But let me just talk about insurance. So, and I'll do it with a story. I had an uncle who was a dentist on the Lower East Side. Uh, the dentist on the Lower East Side, sort of, you know, mostly practicing from about, I don't know, 1910 to about 1940. And there was no insurance, of course. And so this is how they handled it. So you come in and your tooth hurts. On the first day, they drill it. And they put cotton in it and you pay. And the second day, if you're the second week or maybe the second month, depending on, you know, how many garments you can sew, they put something in it, <laughs> okay? And then you come back a month later and, you know, if the tooth doesn't need to be pulled at this point, cause God, you know, then they, they, they polish it. And so, you know, let's not imagine that life without health insurance is, is, is perfect either and that these transactions completely go away. I think the reality is insurance can be more or less efficient. We've probably quit created a system that has a lot of transaction costs. I think we're making some progress towards um, improving that. I think there are other models where the payer systems have been much better. But just remember that... Um, inefficiencies and in transactions costs can be manifest in many ways, both by bureaucracy and by people not getting things when they need them. And so it is a trade-off among those. I, I think we can do better than we have been. But even the, the sort of estimates that suggest those are large don't suggest they're the fundamental cause of um, health, higher health expenditures in the United States. They're part of the story, but not most of it. Let's see if we can exhaust first all the questions that have to do with the relationship between health insurance and health and whether health insurance universal coverage would improve health. And this gentleman on the aisle right here, the, the very eager gentleman. Two brief, my name is Stephen Shore. Two brief questions, one medical, one philosophical. The first is uh, we've not heard, talked about insurance from a purely medical standpoint. In other words, granted that people have chronic diseases, would you want to, as a doctor, want to treat a diabetic patient the moment his or her glucose reading hit 125 or higher, or the HIV patient the moment they seroconverted? Would this not be preferable? And actually not making people healthier, but preventing themselves from becoming more unhealthy. And what if you were to design an insurance program as doctors, regardless of all the statistical research, what would parameters would you take into account? And my second point is philosophical, that granted that uh, it seems there's correlation between income inequality and health. From a libertarian viewpoint, is not universal coverage far more far less intrusive and therefore intellectually preferable than other more sweeping measures of reducing income inequality? Well, I'll, I'll take your first question. And I think from if we were designing a more rational insurance system, uh, one of my colleagues at, at Harvard, Mike Chernu, who's a health economist, has written on this topic. And he's, he's uh, written recommending what he calls a value-based insurance design. So we've got 
you know, as David mentioned, you know, we're leaders in the world in medical research, but we don't necessarily do as well as other countries in implementing what we know works or stopping you know, what we know doesn't work or add value. And we could do a much better job in our insurance design of adjusting financial incentives for patients and doctors to reward the services where we have strong evidence that it makes a difference. And, you know, and for chronic conditions like diabetes or HIV, to some degree they're a moving target, and our insurance system should be able to adapt to evolving evidence. And there may be cases where early intervention is highly cost-effective in preventing people from getting sicker, and other cases where it may not be particularly effective and we may expose people to risks of medications or procedures that, uh, you know, they're better off waiting until their condition is more severe. So, I think, you know, the problem is we have a sort of a, a static or stagnant insurance system. You know, at the margin, there, there's talk of, of sort of innovation in insurance design, but I don't think we're, we, we, we've had as much energy and activity in that respect. Uh, you know, I think your, your, your question about income inequality, you know, obviously it's, it's much tougher because it's, it's not one that the, the healthcare system per se, you know, that's really a, a challenge for the, the political system, you know, and, and, and for the policy community to say, you know, in, in answering an, sort of an earlier point about sort of how we allocate dollars in different countries, you know, other countries that have universal coverage take a more integrated approach to investing. Michael, you were saying, you know, we may, there may be cases where investing in education or nutrition or other uh, potential uh, social programs in, in effective ways would have better benefits for health than putting more money into the healthcare system. And, and I think some countries do a potentially better job sort of saying, you know, do we need our 20th and 30th, you know, MRI scanner in a certain city versus, you know, putting more money into education or, you know, jobs for low-income people. So but what came to mind as I was listening to your question is, um, you know, a low-income family might say that's great that I got, you know, two or three free doctor visits per year, but could I have, you know, maybe just one free doctor visit per year or no free doctor visits per year and a better school for my kids? That might be a better, more effective way of, of, of reducing uh, inequality. Uh, as a libertarian, I'm not so much concerned with inequality as I am with absolute poverty um, uh, or, you know, uh, absolute levels of poor health versus relative levels of poor health. I think the best, and I think the best way to, uh, to, to, um, to get that rising tide that lifts all boats is if, the, you know, the less you redistribute, the higher uh, those, uh, those at the bottom or the better off those at the bottom will, will be. The very intelligent-looking gentleman in the glasses. If you could please identify yourself, sir. Bill Niskanen, the uh, longtime chairman of the Cato Institute, until recently. Um, there are two words I've not heard in this discussion, and the words are moral hazard. Uh, all of the studies that you've talked about seem to treat and. Um, pre-existing conditions as exogenous in statistical terms and that that that, that uh, the, the the fact of the fact of the pre-conditions being independent of the potential use of insurance now I, I just don't know whether there I haven't read this literature that that well but are there any studies that try to imp, uh, to, to look at the consequences of insurance on whether people have these pre-existing conditions, I'll I'll take a stab at that, and then David can tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Uh, there's, uh, I think, you know, the best data point is from the Rand Health Insurance Experiment. They definitely found um, ex post moral hazard, 
once you're insured, you consume more medical services because you don't bear the cost. Uh, I don't think they found any evidence of um, ex ante uh, moral hazard, where you engage in more risky behaviors, you're, you take less care of yourself because you have health insurance. Um, I think you would probably need that uh, that that elusive study where you assign people some people to um, an arm with health insurance and some people to uh, a control arm with health insurance, some people to an experimental arm without health insurance to, to find out. Yes. And actually, <laughs> and actually the, 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 good news, the good news there is that there is such a study that's, that's uh, being conducted right now. Uh, the Oregon Medicaid program, I, I can't remember if they were expanding eligibility or cutting eligibility. They needed to, uh, they, they, were, they decided to randomly assign uh, some people, give out Medicaid slots to low-income adults on a random basis. And so the health economists swooped down and said, wait, wait, let us study this, and uh, they're studying that right now. And so there, there may be some results from that that uh, may be on point. Yes, I'll have it on the side, the young lady. Thank you. Um, my name is Stephanie. I have no real affiliation. What I want to ask, and it is a purely philosophical question, though I do think that it's very important and it's something that nobody really talked about, it was kind of glided over, was is universal health care really, um, is it moral? And by what standard and by what right does anyone have to say that, okay, well, we're going to take this much out of your paycheck as tax money, and it's going to go pay for something completely irrelevant to you if I don't use it? If Even if I do need it, what gives me the right to say, well, I, have, I don't have health insurance and I have a medical issue, what right do I have to demand that somebody else pay for it? Well, I tried to address uh, the the moral issue from the perspective of people who support universal health insurance. I'm not sure. You know, I've never really heard a good articulation of what is that moral case. It's just sort of said, well, you know, this is a moral imperative to provide health insurance to everyone. You scratch the surface, though, and it's much less clear exactly what it is that they are, are trying to achieve. Is it some sense of equity? Is it um, better health? Or is it, are they just trying to, are, are they trying to signal that they are compassionate? Um, so uh, as a libertarian, I, you know, it's easier for me, I think, to uh, make the moral case for, or I can make the moral case for uh, against universal health insurance coverage. What I value, I certainly value your health. But more than that, I value your right to choose what you value and don't want to impose uh, my preferences for you on you, which you know leads me to say that no, the government should not be adopting a policy of universal coverage, if only on moral grounds, because it will violate you know your right to choose uh, what you're going to value and how you're going to use your resources. I can also make the uh, the more practical case that I think that it actually reduces the quality of health care and increases the cost of health care and would lead to worse health outcomes. Um, the, the more aggressively gov uh, government pursues that policy. But I'll leave them. Um, I'll ask John and Dave well, if they you want know, to I, in I'll, on this. You know, moral philosophy is not my field, although I, you know, I find it you know, very interesting, and I think discussions like this are important to sort of, sort of you know, be more explicit about sort of values and differences in values and try and see 
you know, are, do we just sort of at the end of the day disagree on values or can we find, you know, some areas of common ground? And, you know, sort of one sort of theme that, 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 that I find sort of useful in thinking about this is uh, Norm Daniels, who's a, an ethicist at Harvard, uh, has written on uh, what he calls the veil of ignorance in, 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 in healthcare and the way we design the healthcare system. And so regardless of sort of, you know, our underlying values or if we came together with different values, what would we agree if, if, if we were born into a life where we didn't know? You know, obviously all of our beliefs right now are shaped by, you know, the education, the socioeconomic position, the cultural background that sort of we bring to this debate. Uh, can we do the thought exercise and say what healthcare system would we want if we wouldn't know, if we knew sort of what level of stratification we have in our society and, you know, what level of absolute poverty? And it was a lottery sort of where we were going to end up in that system. If we had a veil of ignorance or where we would be, is there some minimum standard of health care, health insurance coverage that, that we could agree sort of that we would all want everyone in the society to have? Or, you know, is, is it ultimately just purely a matter of freedom of choice? And, you know, and I would argue I think if we really sat down and had it, that discussion, we probably could come up with some basic standards. It, it wouldn't necessarily look like the, the insurance system or the health care system that we have right now, but I, I don't think it would be sort of a, you know, pure sort of uh, – uh, unfettered uh, system where sort of everyone was just sort of out for themselves. Yeah. I'll just, I'm also not a moral philosopher, but I, I was watching CNN on Sunday night when the healthcare debate was on and there were, there were breaks for the votes and during those breaks there were callers and the, the average age of the caller was about 23 and their comment was typically very much like yours, you know, except it was personal. It was, why should I have to pay for this thing that I don't need? And, um, you know, that argument, you know, from some perspectives doesn't work at all. And I think Norm Daniels' argument is one reason why. But even if you accept this idea that you shouldn't be forced to pay for something you want, you also have to be willing to commit not to want it when you get sick. And also not to want it for your parents or, you know, your children or a bunch of other people who you probably... I'm sorry? I, 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 I... by a you, I meant the global you, not the personal you. I think we have to make that our last question. And I want to thank, I want to thank again John and David for coming to, to speak with us. And I'd like to remind everyone that our reception is not going to be upstairs in the Winter Garden. It will be right outside uh, the auditorium here on the auditorium level. Look forward to seeing you all out there.